This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hart, and I'm here with Adam Japshow. Hi there. Carol Robidoux, our guest today, is a veteran journalist who, in 2014, stepped out of the world of legacy outlets to create Manchester Inklink a hyper-local news website that now attracts the attention of more than 200,000 unique visitors each month. Thank you for joining us, Carol. Hey, thanks for having me. Carol, could you give us a sense of how the Ink Link came to be, how the idea come about, and why did you think it was worth a shot to begin with? Well, great questions. Uh, I've, you know, I've been in this business for a few decades and been through all the changes of technology, and I feel like when we got to the uh, 2010s to the 2015s, there were some really rapid changes. And one of those included online news. Patch came along and I, and I did Patch for a minute. And that was the realization that there was a way to produce news as one editor or one publisher and one city and be responsive to the community and have the experience to... Uh, leverage your ability to to understand news and and deliver it to people in a way that that they can receive it electronically was possible. So I just I just thought I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to give it a shot. And here we are. You know, it worked somehow. So it, it'll be nine years coming up. So what's the news philosophy behind the Ink Link? How would you say it's different from a conventional or legacy outlet, if at all? I think you know. Our, the, the slogan I came up with initially was, I mean, initially, initially was where all things Manchester collide. And then I realized it probably was better to say connect. So I changed it to where all things Manchester connect because I felt like what was missing for me as a consumer was having one place I could go to find out what was happening in my community, to get reliable news, to participate if I wanted to participate and to feel like there was a conversation with the people who were covering my community. In my experience of life, really, you know, news has always been this estate, so to speak, that dictates to the people what's newsworthy. You know, the, the editorial side will decide what the day's news is going to be, and then they dispatch reporters to bring back the news, and then people open up their paper and they're told what is what is newsworthy. And I think that's it should be shifted. I think we should be following our community to to report on what's really actually happening. And I don't think that's so different from what's happening with legacy news today. But I think editorially, I still want it to feel like the people's publication in some way. I invite people to write and participate in our uh, soapbox, which is sort of like in letters to the editor, but it's a little different than that. So it gives people voices. We've had everybody from, you know, U.S. senators to homeless people contribute their opinions about things that are happening through that vehicle. We have a membership program and we do fun things once a month together so people can hang out with the publisher and tell me what they think about the news. And it's accessibility, it's transparency, it's really being part of this community. It grew out of the need of this community to have a sense of what's happening from a different point of view and following their lead, I think. Well, um, 
I have a couple of questions that are going to relate back to that philosophy. But first, I really am curious to know what it was like to uh, to get the Inklink off the ground. What what did you what did you need? Was there anything that was hard for you to get to get this business going? Yeah, I mean, if I had known what I was doing, it probably never would have happened. But as as it turned out, you know, I'd lo- I'd been laid off from Patch, and I received notice from the employment office that I was eligible for a program called Pathway to Work, and that meant that I could earn, I could take my four hundred and twenty seven dollars a week unemployment and not have to offset it. Should I be able to make some money? at my business, which I had to propose. So I proposed a freelance business and I was going to, on the back burner, start a news business. But after thinking about it for a minute, I realized this might be my only opportunity to start something. So I went on to WordPress, taught myself how to start a new site by pushing a few buttons, gave it a name, um, you know, created a graphic And then I ran out and started covering the community and building stories and archives of stories. And after a few months of doing that and gaining some traction with the help of social media, I approached my first advertiser to see if anybody would want to support what I was doing. And sure enough, I I sold an ad and it was amazing. And it was like, now I just need to keep doing this, which is the hard part because I'm one person. I don't have an ad salesperson to this day. I have to kind of get creative when it comes to financing and supporting what I do. We're, we're certainly like everybody else trying to monetize the news in a way that makes sense and just show the value of it. Really. It's not, (laughs) it's funny in this environment we are in, there's a lot of so-called nonprofit news organizations and it was kind of a joke to myself and my husband that it seems like every news outlet that we've ever known is a nonprofit because nobody's really making money doing this, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's one of the industry jokes of all time. So nonprofit news, you know, we're, we're a for-profit company. I'm, I'm not a nonprofit. I established myself as a business and continue to do that because I think uh, nonprofits are churches and that's just my my own sensibility, you know, I'm, I'm not feeding hungry children, you know, so I want to do it as a business, but it gets harder all the time. Hmm. So you really are, you really just started it on an idea and yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing how um, sometimes the best business ideas don't sometimes make sense on paper. It's not until you actually see them live and in the real world that they, uh, that they do make sense. Yeah. It was also interesting to me that you started this company uh, in the kind of backyard of the state's biggest newspaper, the Manchester Union Leader. Did you do you see them as a competitor? And if so, how's that dynamic played out? Well, I have to first of all say that that's that's the job that brought me to New Hampshire in 2001. I got a job at the Union Leader and worked for the Union Leader as a staff reporter for the first seven years that I was here and then got laid off during the economic crumble of the 2007-2008 and then freelanced for them or was a contractor for a while. Then I went to Patch and and then I started this. And so, as I said at the beginning, you know, I've been through a lot of changes in this industry to see what really is is needed and I and I learned what's needed is someone who cares about the community that they're reporting on. And a nimbleness, I think, in terms of being able to 
switch gears, do what's needed in the moment. If anything, you know, I certainly respect everything that the union leaders tried to do for our community over the years. And I think that model is just kind of suddenly become hard to sustain uh, for them. They, you know, they sold their building, they outsourced their printing, they've downsized their staff, and I've taken on some of the freelancers that they felt they couldn't keep on anymore for financial reasons. So it's like, I don't feel like the competition, but I do feel like I'm an option, an alternative. Again, I don't, you know, the, the main difference might be that I don't do a lot of editorializing about things Uh, I don't take a position on who people should vote for. I really just try to present them with all the information they need to make a good decision. That's one place where maybe I differ from the legacy publications. I have editorialized from, from time to time, but I don't do it with any regularity. And I certainly don't have political positions, so to speak. I'm not known as a, you know, flaming Republican or a flaming liberal or something like that. So I try to keep the balance in the editorial side of things. Well, in a way, it's a, yeah, I, I understand what you mean. Um, you sort of might be in the same ecosystem, but you're not like the same kind of animal. Yeah, I mean, we certainly do the same stuff on it, maybe on a, a smaller scale. But, you know, one of the things that happened a few years ago was bringing the idea of the news collaborative to New Hampshire. That was my idea for the most part. I, I think having come out of legacy newspapers and knowing the competitive nature of newspapers in the same market, my personal approach to most everything is collaboration. And once I was a publisher myself in this space, I just felt like we needed to support each other better as as publications that have a niche or a, a particular readership. And we can all, we can contribute to the greater good by collaboration and allowing our readerships to get more information rather than less. Yeah, and I we appreciate that you were one of the people that encouraged and opened doors for Anthony Payton, who was one of our early guests on this podcast. And it's hard to imagine that he would have had similar opportunities with a legacy uh, outlet as he had with the Inklink. So uh, thank you for that as well. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like um, it's it's about relationships and knowing people in your community. I think, and and as you said, I mean, I don't know that there's people who can walk up to any publication and say, "Hey, give me a chance." Oh, I don't happen to have a journalism degree or anything, but I have a lot of big ideas. I'll always I'll always be that person listening for those voices. Do you think that the the sort of ink link model? as you've created it, could be replicated in other markets? Or does it need to be in a place like Manchester and have a person named Carol Robidoux to lead it? <laughs> well, so the the happy accident was when I started this journey, I found there was an organization called Lion Publishers, L-I-O-N, for local independent online news publishers. And so there are hundreds of Carol Robidoux's all over the country with publications similar to mine in terms of their independence and their sort of small operation budget. (laughs) Uh, They do a lot with with a lot less than a legacy paper might do. And, um, you know, and that's also changed a lot in these last eight or nine years. There's a lot more younger, more diverse journalists getting in on uh, hyper-local publications that fit 
some aspect of the community that isn't being heard or being addressed. So it's like everything, you know, the disruptors of all technologies or all industries. There's been a disruption in journalism and it continues to evolve. And so uh, for right now, you know, we're doing our thing and I think the community is embracing it. Um, I don't know what the future looks like for any of us, but, you know, I think it's encouraging what I see is young people more and more interested in news, journalism, civic engagement, truthful reporting, objective reporting, and all of those things. Now it's just a matter of figuring out how to get them prepared and get them into the industry to make some money at it because there aren't a lot of jobs right now. Well, and you've given them one example of how you can kind of create that job if you don't find it. It's, it's certainly, I, I share your enthusiasm for the number of passionate and, and intelligent young people that are trying to find their way in. It's very encouraging. I think it's also the public has come to view social media somehow as news or something. And a year ago, I, I, did a, I tried a fundraiser through a fiscal agent and I set my goal at $100,000 and I stated that that would allow me to hire two reporters. And believe it or not, I, I got some, I won't say pushback, but I had a lot of people scratching their heads about that high number. And I was, I had to explain, you know, I don't realistically think I'll raise $100,000, but I have to realistically tell you what I would need to really do this more completely, which is provide two mid-range salary jobs for two experienced reporters or just eager reporters to help cover this community in such a way that the community wants information. There's a high demand for instantaneous information and no appetite to pay for it. So it was it was my way of letting my readers know at least that we do what we do and there's costs involved and it should be worth something to someone. I'd like to go back to the discussion that we had started about your news philosophy for at the Inklink. And you have within the past year, last 12 months, you've covered some really important stories that have resonance beyond the Manchester area. I'm thinking of the Harmony Montgomery situation and also the uh, the way that Manchester has been confronting its crisis of its residents who are experiencing homelessness. Could you discuss, well, if we could start with Harmony Montgomery, could you give us sort of like that that situation uh, in as much as possible a thumbnail and how you were able to approach that in your own unique way? So Harmony Montgomery came to our attention. It was it was very close to the end of the um, the year and we received word that there was a missing child. And as we began to understand what was going on, it it became clear that the child had been missing for quite a while, but it had only come to the attention of the police department. And it had to do with the mother reaching out to the mayor, the Manchester mayor, Joyce Craig, in a moment of desperation because she wasn't feeling heard. She was in recovery from addiction. She had lost custody of harmony. So there were a lot of reasons why you know, there's this knee-jerk reaction through social media that the, the general public becomes the judge and jury of everybody the minute they see a breaking news story. 
They immediately decide who's guilty, who's innocent, who did what, and everybody's an amateur detective on top of it. So quickly that story captured the attention of not just this community and not just really the state of New Hampshire's media, but I would say internationally, it became a story. It, over time, it, it grew into a story of high interest because there was a lot of intrigue around it in terms of where's Harmony? She was missing. How does a child disappear? And both parents say they don't have her and nobody knows the answers. So obviously that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a story that's going to get you some clicks. But for me, the clicks have never really been the objective as much as being sensitive to the fact that these are people's lives. You know, we, we tried interviewing not only Harmony's mom, but a couple that had adopted Harmony's brother through the court system and had wanted to adopt Harmony as well, but were told she was not available for adoption. And try to, you know, Report the facts, but not be, I don't want to say vultures in the, in the you know, presence of other reporters, but I think, you know, it's those kinds of stories bring out the worst sometimes in the media because you want to, you know, you want to cover it. There's a sincere interest in relaying information, but it can become too much. So, yeah, so we, we really just tried to, to, to keep the, the stories factual and to try to look at the the whole story as it as we you know we spent a lot of time laying out the timeline as best we could and and looking at documents to really sort out the people involved and and when she was last seen and heard from and just it's just one of those heartbreaking stories that at some point early on you kind of know that the outcome is going to be devastating for everybody, but you still have to cover it and you still have to start thinking about prevention for other children. If, if the system failed Harmony Montgomery, then it's, it's likely that it's failed another child or there will be a future child that falls through these cracks. What do we do? How do we prevent that as a community? How do we solve this uh, this should not happen to a child who's already been identified as at risk. I could read the compassion in your stories. I could, I could feel that coming through your words um, for her family, for her, and also for the, uh, the investigators who were trying to find her. So I, you succeeded on that front. The other story I wanted to ask you about was the the issue of the residents experiencing homelessness in, in Manchester. That's one that's currently developing as the city is taking some extreme measures. Uh, what's it been like for you to cover that one? Well, you know, we started we started in June of 2014 doing this, and it wasn't it was in the midst of that that the opioid crisis was becoming publicized, I would say. We had spice epidemics happening all of a sudden. They were shutting down parks and closing down stores that were selling spice. And so we were, we had, we had overdose calls throughout the entire day where ambulances were being dispatched and so much so that they had to rely on other towns and cities to meet the need because there were so many people dropping from drug overdoses. That was the rise of Safe Station after that, where we thought, let's create a way for people to come for help before they're overdosing. And so 
in the context of addiction and in the context of the the number of people whose lives were affected by that, we've seen this other thing happening. And it's not just in Manchester, it's around the country. And we know now that the entire country was hit hard by the opioid crisis and the heroin crisis that followed and the fentanyl crisis that has followed that. So it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us that we're now facing, you know, an issue that involves people with addiction and mental health and homelessness, but it also coincides with housing issues, the rising cost of of housing, the rise in, and nobody's necessarily reported it this way, although I feel it probably is part of the story, the rise in Airbnbs and vacation rentals, young property bros and people like that buying up properties and then creating, you know, a way to make money off of them, but it takes them off the market. So they're not straight up housing anymore. So there's so many layers and so much of it that coincides. And then it brings us to this moment where for the last three or four years, we've reported since COVID even that shelters are past capacity. They're not really building new capacity. The money that the state is pouring into the shelter system is not to extend capacity, but it's really just to help them meet the current need. Our shelter here in Manchester, the Families in Transition Emergency Adult Shelter, has said that they're getting, you know, a fraction of what it costs per bed from the from the state to operate. So there's so many things at play. And now we have finally, after months of seeing the homeless create encampments all throughout the city. There's a small faction of them who've created an encampment right around the perimeter of the shelter on a public sidewalk. That has created a whole nother layer of issues for our city and resulted in a ACLU lawsuit that was filed. They wanted to, uh, they filed it for an injunction on Friday, this past Friday, to stop the city from evicting people, which they were going to Uh, do as of today. We just found out this morning that the judge ruled in favor of the city and did not find that the ACLU had made its case to prove that evicting people from the sidewalk would would do them harm. And and that's a big oversimplification of the ruling, um, partly because I haven't had the time to read it yet. This all just sort of happened in the last hour or two. But ultimately, we're, we're working right now. I have a reporter working on that aspect of it to see what is the city's plan. Because that's been the question all along. You can tell people to move, but where shall they go? We have created an emergency overnight sleeping shelter for them at the senior center. And we do have a daytime warming shelter where they can go. And the city is working on a couple of other places, transforming the former bus depot into a shelter, taking over a state-owned property that was a sober house for men into a shelter for women. So there's a lot suddenly happening in a space that was kind of stagnant, partly because of COVID. But I think there's resolve here in Manchester and in other parts of the state right now to take bigger actions to get past the sheltering part of it and expand that to meeting people's needs to get them back to life, if you will. Hearing you talk about this has brought to mind a sort of tension that I feel within my own uh, work, which is traditional role of a journalist, as you described sort of at the beginning of our talk of just presenting information to, to the readers or to your to your audience versus being more of an advocate 
through the way that the industry has been evolving in recent years, I think there is a growing understanding that you can also fail your readers by not giving them enough insight into the human condition that you're talking about. Is that something that you would want to speak to? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, anybody that's been a reporter knows that the reporting part, which is basically doing your due diligence to figure out, you know, all the pieces of a story, talk to all the people involved, go look at something for yourself, read documents, ask questions that clarify rumors that are swirling around or misinformation. And in the end, as a reporter, you have a lot, you know a lot more about any given topic than the average reader might know. So what do you do? Do you, do you use that to pull in the kind of information that is going to show people that there's there's much more to a story than what's on the face of it or what they're saying at a meeting, that there's many more layers to it. It's, it's like a, not a slippery slope because there are different types of journalism. Certainly there's, you know, journalism that advocates or has an editorial point of view or takes a hard line against the government or something like that. You know, they're kind of progressive or something like that. For me, I think it's my job if I know things, to find a way to report that. So it might mean I hear about something and I, and I need to report further on that. So you have to do a second story that walks you through a process. For example, 211 in, in New Hampshire is a number you're supposed to call if you need something like a home or help with addiction or anything. You're losing your lease on your apartment. I've twice gone through the process of calling 211 to see where it leads me. And I'll be reporting on that pretty soon because it's not enough to hear from the state. Well, we have the 211 system and there's doorways and people can get in the doorways and it's great. But the reality of that system is it may be more flawed than anybody knows because who's, who's checking, you know, I mean, it's in place and it, and it was a, it was a large price tag attached to it. But from everybody that I speak to, from people who try to use it to people who are in the trenches, they say it's not really effective to do the thing that it's supposed to do. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do because we're lacking the systems that are supposed to be in place. So it's my job. That's, that's the only thing I have to do is, to, you know, I'm not, I mean, this is what I'm doing for, for my living is checking into things and, and trying to figure things out and make things make sense and connect the dots for readers with my particular skill set. So I'm going to do that. I don't have an agenda, but I do feel if I'm hearing something, I'm I'm now going to have to check it out. I'm going to have to do the the legwork and see where see where it takes me and then report on that in a in a in a way that is not biased or sometimes it's in my voice but only to say I actually tried to do this and this is what happened you know is there someone doing something to help the uh situation homeless situation in manchester that you think is really encouraging i mean you know let's consider that you know the city has hired its second director of homeless initiatives the first director was here for about 18 months and made some good strides but there were some it was hard it was a hard situation because 
philosophically, there's a difference of opinion about what should happen to people who are unhoused. What's the right solution there? And on top of that, our director of homeless services at that time, Shauna Green, also had some complications within her own personal life that forced her to make some tough decisions about the job. But we've quickly hired a new director of homeless initiatives who is Adrian Boulogne, and she is a social worker by trade and uh, speaks the language of, of recovery and mental health. And so she's jumped in with both feet at the same time the city just hired a couple weeks ago its first director of overdose prevention, another first for our city. And that individual, Andrew Warner, will be working closely with police, fire, health department, with a strike team, so that if there's, you know, a bunch of overdoses happening due to a bad bunch of drugs, he can get out there and get the word out to people, but also do the outreach around recovery and connecting individuals to the services that hopefully the growing services that will come out of some of the initiatives that are happening right now and the money being spent. It's it's all connected. It's all sort of related. I think the city is doing a lot of interesting things, but there, it needs to look at other cities like Keene and Nashua, Portsmouth. They're also doing their own thing. Some interesting things, building shelters with wraparound services built in. And, and I think in that regard, that's where the state piece comes in. And, and to be honest, you know, the, the relationship between Manchester and Concord has been strained. And I don't know how much that is politics. But the thing I do think is that as a state, the state needs to figure out how it can support the cities that are struggling, and there are many, to, to make sure that there's some uniformity in services and what can it do to help Manchester? What can it do to help Nashua? Every city and town has its unique needs and approach and resources. So as much as it's New Hampshire and as much as it's local control, I think there's there's more that has to be done. But I see I see a positive direction right now in Manchester with Adrian Boulogne, with Andrew Warner, with the health department, our police chief, our fire chief, relatively new, but very dedicated and enthusiastic. These departments are all working together. And I think that is a good step for our city, you know. Let's see what happens next. There's always the next thing, but we'll see. Well, speaking of the next thing, uh, my last question for you is, uh, is there a particular story that you're working on that you really want to to preview or promote or tease? I know you also already mentioned the 211 uh, exploration, which sounds like a great story idea. So I'll look, I will be looking for that one. But anything else you'd like to you'd like to promote? Yeah, I mean, that one will be, you know, it's part, I mean, it's, I could have written it three weeks ago, uh, if I weren't busy doing everything else. But I think in terms of stories, the, the bigger story for me is the future of journalism. And one thing we tried to do in the last year was initiate the idea of a news incubator with a K, finding ways to connect with the community, uh, with younger aspiring journalists or with community members like Anthony Payton who are interested in writing and just need some support there. And I think for my money, that is an important thing that I know, you know, Franklin Pierce is interested in that. I know a lot of the other news outlets are interested in that. So my 
I feel the burden of making something happen, which is kind of, I guess that's my thing, <laughs> like a spark plug type thing. I'd like to, you know, really try to get something moving in that direction that New Hampshire can have, you know, we already have collaborative news organizations working together. Now let's do something collaboratively to strengthen the future of journalism right here in our state. So that's where I'm going to be putting my energy, I think. All right. Well, I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that because what you've done with your energy so far is uh, quite remarkable. Oh, so thank I you. Look, yeah. Well, thank you. All right. Uh, Julie, do you have any questions for Carol? No. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carol. Um, I've really enjoyed hearing about your work. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support. <laughs>